everyone, this is yet another episode of Off the Record uh, with your host Aram Mukumov. Uh, I'm here. I'm here today with Stephen Stephen Forte, uh, managing partner at Fresco Capital. He was chief strategy officer at Telerik, a leading vendor of developer and team productivity tools, which got acquired in 2014. He's uh, a little bit about Stephen. He's an avid mountain climber and leads an annual charity fundraising trek uh, in the Mount Everest region. Stephen. Uh, it's great to have you on our show today. Um, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be on the show. Awesome. Uh, first question I have, I was just curious, have you, uh, since you do this fundraising trek to uh, Mount Everest, have you actually been to Everest before or, or climbed it? Uh, I, I warned you not to ask this question. I said it would, it would suck up all our time, so I'll try to be brief. But um, <laughs> I, I've actually never climbed Mount Everest to the top. I've been on expeditions that did go to the top. Um, it, it's a longer story and the short version is it takes two months and in the when I was younger and more risk less risk averse um, I didn't have two months because I was hustling and right. you, know, you know now that I'm in the second half of my career and I could probably afford to take two months off um, you know it's, it's more complicated I have a wife I have a kid I have a business I run <laughs> it was a lot more a lot more difficult um, and probably a little as you get older you probably get a little bit more risk averse um, I have been to Mount Everest Base Camp probably about a dozen times on the charity treks. Uh, so it's been it's been fascinating watching people go up the mountain and you know helping raise money for the charities, which is a local mm -hmm. school, which is what we raise the money for. Awesome. Is it on the docket for you in the future then at some point or? And to be honest, I don't think so. I think um, okay. I, I have, a, as I said, it's a longer conversation about helping. Yeah transform the local economy in the Mount Everest region, the Sherpas, um, bringing them ownership in some of the, um, you know, the indigenous people there, giving them more ownership in, in the trekking. So instead of trying to dissuade people from trekking and tourism, that is truly, you know, a gold mine for the, for the locals. But the locals aren't really getting that gold at the moment. It's, it's wealthy businessmen and women in Delhi and Kathmandu that are getting that, that money. So I'm looking to get them a higher percentage of that and have some ideas. So I feel like I'm going to spend more time as I, as I, um, as I advance that idea. And then of course, as my daughter, who's only six, as she starts to grow up, I want to start bringing her to the mountains I've climbed. And you don't start with Mount Everest. <laughs> you start with like McKinley and Kilimanjaro and things like that, or Mount Rainier and things like that. So, right. yeah, so. Cool, well, uh, that's, that's an amazing thing that you're doing with, with, the, with the fundraiser though. So, so thank, thank you for you. doing that. Um, um, all right, first questions I have to uh, maybe kick it off is, You've had an, a, an impressive five exits to date, all with different businesses. Um, as a founder, through your journey or through experiences you've been through, what do you need to prepare when you go through an exit? I, I think it's your expectations. Um, so in essence, you know, I had a friend when they um, signed a letter of intent um, you know, he was, a, he was going out and buying all new furniture for his new house and his wife was buying deck furniture for the deck of their new house, you know, the new house they don't have yet. And, um, you really have to have the expectations of a couple of things. One is the deal itself as you negotiate the deal. The second is what the payout structure is going to look like. You know, if there's an earnout, if it's cash, if it's escrow, uh, you know, and then third is just like morality, right? Like money really shouldn't change you all that much. Like, what are you going to do after this exit? Right? Like, you know, is it a big exit? Is it a small exit? You know, a lot of friends ask me, why do you still work? I'm like, well, why, why wouldn't I? Right? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that type of thing. So that's definitely one of the things that you need to prepare yourself. There's some legal things and stuff and we can, we can drill into those if you want uh, that you should prepare yourself for as well as a founder. Um, just real briefly before we maybe even ask some of them, I think it's important to bring up 
I think it's critical for founders to have their legal due diligence stuff ready before an acquirer even comes. And what that really means is getting all your ducks in a row. That's a very American term, but you know, maybe to explain it more, just making sure all your legal stuff is up to speed before you have someone knocking on your door to buy the company. So making sure you have your regular board meetings with the minutes you know, that are, you know, logged with your lawyer, right? I know it's a drag, but, you know, you get that done. Make sure all your employees have their IP confidentiality agreement signed. Make sure all your vendors have it signed. Make sure all your cap tables and or like all that stuff, which, you know, it's going to cost you some money and time. Just get it done. And if you do it along the way, as opposed to like this bum rush before, the exit will be a lot less stressful, the negotiations, and, the, and it will go faster and the due diligence will be a lot easier. Okay. Um so yeah, that was going to be one of my questions I was going to ask about the legal side. But um, as a founder, um, when you, you 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 obviously invest in a lot of founders, a lot of businesses, but like if a founder was to come to you now asking for advice in terms of when to exit their business, what would you want to tell them? Well, it's interesting because as, as someone who's been on this. My, my, well, this way, my perspective has changed, you know, probably in the last 10 years, partly as you mentioned, I had five exits, you know, most of those exits were to uh, large publicly traded companies. So it's pretty standard M&A, you know, like, you know, Google bought one company, a company called Progress, a big publicly traded company bought another company, a company up in Canada called Wanted, traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, bought another one. So, you know, going through, you know, the large, right, um, you know, bigger tech company buying smaller tech company, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, but then I've also been through like a private equity roll up in one of these exits and then one hire. So like, you know, you kind of figure out how, you know, the, you know, how the, the mechanics work. But then of course, as a VC, I mean, I've, I've lost track now. Like, you know, we've probably, I mean, I really should know this, the exact number, but let's call it about 15 exits, you know, over the last seven years uh, or six years um, at Fresco and some range, you know, ranging from IPO to M&A buyout, you know, the same, the, the same gamut of things. So um, the real true answer to that, after all that perspective of both being a, like a, an entrepreneur who sold his business as well as a VC who's invested in a business and then, you know, worked with the entrepreneurs is when it's right for the business. And I know that's a little of, of, a, of a generic answer. And I know it's a little bit of a, um, maybe a cop-out people might think if you're listening, I apologize if you think it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's all, but, but it happens to be true. And, you know, one of the businesses I had sold, it was actually the second exit I went through. It, it was absolutely the right time for the business and the partner buying was the right partner. The dollars weren't amazing. It was okay. Right. And my business partner who, who had a little bit more than me, I mean, you, you know, it was about a 60, 40 split, you know, and then, I mean, of the, of the equity that was left over and then we had some investors, but in essence, it was our decision. And at first he was a little hesitant because the numbers weren't amazing, you know, and there was, but there was a lot of upside potentially with earnouts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, you know, I just kind of appealed to it. I said, this is the right reason, you know, this is the right move for the business, even if it's not the right move for us personally. And, you know, then it got a little emotional because, you know, I was in my twenties and he was in his fifties and he's like, well, you know, you could just go get a tech job anywhere. Like, you know, you can work at like this new startup I heard of called Facebook. <laughs> um, you know, you can just go get, you know, you're young, you can, you're young, you're a techie of skills. He goes, you know, I'm in my fifties. Like I can go get another boring CEO job. Right. You know, but I'm not really going to probably do another startup in my late fifties. And I said to him, I go, yeah, I go, but like, 
you know, as I said, the money wasn't amazing. So I'm like, I could go buy a nice car and, and that, but I go like, I still have to work for the next 40 years. Right. Like, you know, so like, I'm, you know, if I really wanted to go for the bigger money, I would say let's hold, but I go, it might not be the right move for the business, even though it's maybe not the best for us personally. So I, ironically, I had that conversation in my twenties at, at my second startup as a founder, but that position is hardened along the way, especially as a venture capitalist, right? Especially going in as a VC and seeing the, um, you know, these, these exits coming. And sometimes you see a company sell at the wrong time and no one's really happy, including the buyer. Um, and as, as well as, um, as well as people maybe selling at the exact time and, and everyone's kind of happy, the buyer, the seller, the investors, everyone else, right? Yeah. That's interesting. And, and if I'm not mistaken, you've also gone through kind of two different acquisition style exits, right? Um, through your journey. Um, along the way, or what are the things that you could maybe share with to the founders who are going to be listening um, around? How do you not sell yourself too low when, it, when, it, when that acquisition exit happens in your business? You mean the, um, the exits that are, are necessarily just buying up the team, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've, I, so you're right. I think, um, you know, you're probably, if I remember our conversation, but I mean, I know what they are is, you know, I two just to the viewers don't know is I two exits that were either one was pre-revenue company and the other one was pretty low, small revenue. Um, and they were bought, um, upfront and the biggest piece of advice, actually I have two pieces of advice that would go there. Um, the first is when you're selling the company and you want to make sure you sell yourself, like, you know, whether you're too high or too low is always look at the value of your company as a function of the value that you're adding to the company that's buying you. Because if you're selling a pre-revenue company or just a low revenue, like maybe two, three million in ARR or lower, um, or even if it's anything under 10 is still probably considered small for some of the numbers that we want valuations. Stop trying to run like a cost benefit analysis and a discounted cash flow analysis and you know a PE ratio analysis, right? Um, what you really want to do is what what type of problem are you solving for the buying company? Um, you know, for example, if um, I had I had a friend who had like a business that was a steady five million dollar business, it was profitable, and he was going to go sell his company to a, a company that I was familiar with, and I actually knew their CTO and. And coincidentally with having dinner with him the other night. And I, so I was kind of like now in the middle as a broker and I had to be careful because like both were friends, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one was publicly traded, right? You know, so I can't be, I'm not, I wasn't at the time. I, at points in my career, I had been registered with the SEC, but I wasn't at the time. So I had to be super careful. But I, I kind of got from my, the buying company that they were trying to, you know, they had like, they had like a $20 million hole that they were trying to fill with this acquisition. Or maybe it was, it was actually, I'm sorry, they, they had a $100 million hole that they were trying to fill up that acquisition. And um, so I went to my friend, I'm like, well, you're, he's keep saying like, well, they buy me a one X revenue, two X revenue. I go, forget that. I go, you're solving a hundred million dollar problem, right? Like you may have to pay for it as an earnout over three or four years, but in essence, understand the, um, the problem that you're solving for the buyer, right? Um, you know, so of course the buyer there's going to have accountants and lawyers and CFOs and they're going to go beat you or, or, or worse MBAs. Don't get me wrong. I have an MBA so I can mock <laughs> MBAs, but the MBAs are going to come in and start running DCFs, discounted cash flows and saying that you're worth $2 million or they're going to come up with some really insulting number. And all you do is just keep coming back. Fine. You have to really be firm. Like I'm willing to walk. Right. And that's the other thing is the other thing is you have to truly be committed to the deal. 
and the vision. So it's not just like, oh, I built my business, I'm out, I'm gonna go buy the Ferrari, right? It's more like, no, I wanna go extend this vision, right? And I wanna extend this vision at the new company. So if you choose the right partner, that's gonna bring you the resources, the brand and the talent, right? That's going to help you build your, you know, your vision, take it to the next level. And you have to truly commit to that earnout. That's most likely in a, in a scenario like that, it's going to be an earnout where you have like, if you're not familiar with the earnout, it's typically like if you sell your business for $10 million, they might give you like $1 million in cash at the close. And it's never all in cash at the close. It's always dripped out over like two years. There's a cash, there's an indemnity and then a hold back, right? So there's usually three payments over the course of 12 to 18 months. But you'll get this million dollar cash payout, payout in the first 18 months. And then over the next three years, you're going to get you know, there's $9 million left to be like nine, it'd be $3 million of company stock over the next three years. If you meet certain metrics and goals, that's called an earn up. And I find that that's actually quite aligned because it's cheap for the buyer. Because if you add the value that you say you're going to add, um, you will earn that earn out and everyone's going to be happy. Meaning you will be adding money and then, and then you can retire, so to speak, or whatever it is, or leave the business and go do your next startup. Right. Um, you know, so ultimately is, um, when you're selling yourself in one of these Accu hires, is you have to be find the right partner, be true to the vision, and keep laser beam focused on the value that you're adding, as opposed to like just dollar, you know, like what the company is worth as a, um, a debt to equity ratio or discounted cash flow, like whatever it is, type of a thing. Uh, Stephen, on on that something you mentioned, how do you determine what is that hole that you can fill within that company? So in this specific example, you said that. Uh, the buying company had a hundred million dollar hole that they need to, f to fill, but this company that was potentially, you know, going through that acquisition, um, you know, they were being valued at like one or 2 million, but the value that they could bring to that company is a lot higher as like the company that is being sold as the founder in that situation. How do you determine what, how big of a hole you're going to fill for that company in terms of the value? Well, like, it should be I'll obvious. I'll never share that with you, right? Well, well, well hold, hold on a second. Um, first of all, it should be obvious, right? You know, so I mean, as of today, Twitter is not buying Pinterest. Whenever the viewers view this, maybe maybe the deal is super dead or maybe it comes back. But Twitter, you know, Pinterest is obviously solving a problem for for Twitter, which would be e-commerce, right? Or And vice versa, the synergy between the two, right? So, so ultimately, it should be obvious, right? Like when you look at some of these. But if it's not obvious, I actually say you can ask them. Right. And then multiply whatever they say by two, because they're not going to, you're right. They're not going to, they're going to be a little shy about it, but like, you know, people like to talk. And honestly, the way you really negotiate these deals is I know with COVID it's hard, but like in a casual environment, you, you very, very rare. Are you like in a boardroom, like in the movie sweating and like an offer comes in, they leave the room and come back. No, it takes like two months of phone calls and coffee shop meetings and every, yeah. you know, you meet up at a conference if you're not in the same city, you know, like, and I mean, honestly, one of my acquisitions started with grabbing a beer with them at a conference. And they said, hey, what would it take for us to acquire you? Almost as a joke. And like my partner, unfortunately, threw out a number and, I, and like that was their first bid. <laughs> like, dude, I was like, I was like, I was like grabbing him like, dude, I kick you. Like, don't give a number. Just say like a billion dollars then, right? Because you know? um, then now you've anchored, right? Um, but, but ultimately, yeah, you would... Um, you know, you would then, and then here's the weird piece of advice or, or the, the piece of advice that you probably never considered is, listen, we're startup CEOs, startup founders, startup CTOs, we're experts in our domains. We're not experts in M&A, right? Um, I learned that people think I'm an expert in M&A. No, I just asked the experts and took their advice, right? You know, so when I was selling that IQ hire, I had a really good friend. She and I were, um, 
running a marathon together. So we were training two or three days a week, um, you know, and long story short is, you know, I, I lived in New York and she worked at a top tier um, merger, M&A analyst fund, right? And every single M&A deal that ever happens, you know, like they write up the brief, right? And then they, you know, they sell it to hedge funds, this, that, the other thing. So I just asked her, I asked an M&A expert, right? And, you know, she went in, she dove into their stock, gave me numbers, you know, and I used, I mean, I, I just like, copy and paste some things out of her email onto my emails back to them in the negotiation, right? Like, you know, like, oh yeah, you add our EBITDA to your EBITDA and it's going to add to your stock price this and that. And like, you know, you can see pretty quickly how fast the, the conversation turned, right? So, so ultimately someone's going to know if you don't get it from them directly. And if it's not obvious from just the market moves, um, it, it, you know, an M&A expert can tell you, because most likely it's going to be a bigger company that's either publicly traded. I mean, if someone's can afford to buy you there, someone's, done some analysis on that company. So having uh, close friends who are familiar with M&As is, I think is a handy uh, I mean, you can, you can find to them. pull from. Yeah, yeah you <laughs> can find them, whether it's, you know, if you went through an accelerator, someone went, you know, like someone will know someone, right? Or you could, or, or just pay for it. You know, if it's a big enough mm -hmm. deal, just just go pay a little bit to have someone help you out. Like there are definitely, um, you know, advisory advisories out there and they're not as expensive as you think. And then, then they'll pitch you on representing you. And if this is the first time you're doing it, it's, it, that's not necessarily a bad idea. They could squeeze extra, they'll pay for themselves by squeezing a little yeah. extra value out, you know. Um, Steven, out of the five exits that you had, which one do you still come back to kind of person when you reflect in terms of uh, the biggest lesson learned uh, through the process? Yeah, I mean, this is the one where folks, um, this is the one that was the largest on the numbers wise. Um, but at, uh, at Teleric, which was the last uh, one, the last one before we started Fresco Capital, you know, we sold for, you know, all in like, you know, about $300 million and change or whatever, you know, whatever, however, there was a little bit of stock involved. So like the stock went up later, it was like 250 million in cash. And then there was some RSUs involved and stuff. Um, however, I, I viewed us as a, a competitor to Atlassian and I viewed us as a competitor to Atlassian because like that's what we talked about in management meetings a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not like I'm sitting there alone by myself with my fellow peers, with my peers. Right. And, um, you know, last year went public for 6 billion. Right. You know, so I feel like I left 5.5 billion on the table. Right. Like, even though this was amazing exit, it was mostly, it was like, you know, 90 something percent cash upfront cash. Right. Like it was, um, you know, like no one really lost their job up front. You know, I mean, I didn't go into the new company, um, but you know, most people, everyone who really wanted to go to the new company went to the new company, right? Um, you know, that kind of thing. There was a decent amount of synergy. So it was a decent, it was a good enough deal. Um, but I feel like, you know, it's one of those examples of we can go get that big number or if we would have taken maybe a VC round, you know, and in fairness to us at the time, the VC dollars wasn't, you know, this was 10 years ago, wasn't as flowing as it was flowing today. You weren't able to get these sky evaluations. But I do feel like, you know, if we had taken another VC round and built other products, expanded things, you know, we easily could have went out and, you know, today, today, especially in today's market, right? When I look back at that, like, you know, could have, you know, been, you know, 5 billion, like just, just like, just like it last year. Yeah. So uh, a lesson learned. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everyone was happy with the outcome. You know, our, our, our series ABC was happy with the outcome. You know, it was easy 10 X for them. Right. You know, which is what they're going for. So, you know, ultimately when it's all said and done, it was a great deal, but I keep coming back to that one is just because it's a great deal. Doesn't mean that, um, 
you know, it, doesn't mean you couldn't have done better, right? You know, if, but if you have to have a risk tolerance, right? You know, because this company was, we were 10 years in almost, or yeah, something, right. something cl close to 10 years in at the time, maybe not quite 10, but we're 10 years. Actually, no, yeah, we were 10 years in at the time, right? So um, on the flip side, a new deal, uh, you know, that would have required more risk, more dilution, more board member, you know, so like there, there's a cost, right? You know, to get to that Atlassian level, right? You know, so like it really is a time value of money equation in your head. Like, do you take the slightly slower all cash offer now or roll the dice? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, having had four exits under my belt at the time, I was like, yeah, let's roll the dice. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of other people, it's their first rodeo, right? So yeah, they wanted to cash out. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, interesting. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, next question I have is um, going, it's your story from going from being a founder to a VC. So um, from all the people I've spoken to, and, you know, we talked about it as well, but everybody seems that as like a sign of success. <laughs> to ask, why do you think that is? Uh, I think because everyone feels like the grass is greener on the other side. People think VCs have the best job in the world and VCs think founders have the best job in the world. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, I, I kind of fell into it, uh, into the VC, partly because I was angel investing and then when, when Telework was sold, it seemed like a good idea. But for me, Fresco was also a startup. So I felt like my sixth startup, right? Like, you know, we built the VC fund from scratch. Um, but ultimately is, I feel you're right, that people view it as like this, I, I've successfully, you know, like crossed some chasm. I've graduated from founder to VC. And I, I, I think you graduate from founder to, to founder of, of the next big thing is, is, is more of a success story, right? Than it is a, um, you know, that it is going into the VC world because don't get me wrong, like the VC space is exciting, but it's measured in 10 year cycle. So that means if you want to innovate in your fund structure, um, you're not going to get feedback potentially for 10 years, right? So it's a very different, it's a very different universe than the, than the, the pace in the structure you're, you're working at with a startup. And it's also a lot harder, believe it or not. Um, and, and maybe that part, that's the good part, maybe when you maybe want to leave to become a, the founder, because it is a new challenge. And that's actually what drew me to it, right? Because I'm like, I, you know, it sounds a little, maybe a bit of hubris or, or, or whatever, probably more naivety is, I kind of felt that at this stage of my life, going into another another startup is is what's expected. And I felt like, let me do something that's a bigger challenge, right? Because it's definitely a, a way bigger challenge raising money for a 10-year fund than it is for a startup, right? It's just that it's institutional capital is so much different than startup capital for VCs, right? So it's... Um, um, I mean, I, I want to ask you about how do you... Um, I mean, I think I know how people actually become VCs, but I want to ask you maybe another question is um, there's a lot of, as you said, the grass is greener being a VC, but I mean, what sucks about it, I guess is my question, because I'm curious if success looks like of um, founders going and becoming VCs, because that's like the next thing that they do. Should we maybe be discouraging CEOs going down the <laughs> VC route and having more CEOs creating companies? Um, I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, do you think that um, that could be an idea or like what, what sucks about being a VC, I guess? Yeah, I, I actually do try to talk founders out of becoming a VC. And I don't know, I don't know if I would frame it as what sucks as being a VC. I'm going to just say what, what is um, very, because if it sucked, I wouldn't do it, um, right? But what 
is far less fun and desirable than being in, in, a, in, a, in a startup is, is, the, is the following. Is, um, and then there's something you have to unlearn, right? So, so the first is an operator, right? So, so if you're an operator and you're used to doing, you know, well, let's say you're a growth marketer. I, I, just, I just was talking to a buddy of mine who's a hotshot growth marketer. And, you know, you name a fast growing startup, he's probably worked there over the last 10 years, right? You know, boom, boom, boom. And I was just chatting with him right before I hopped on this call. And if he went and became a VC, he's gonna, he's gonna go from being a growth marketer working in a high bandwidth environment with fast results, um, with an amazing team that's always growing to working at a stack, uh, still amazing, but stagnant team that's not growing. You know, you add members at VC every fund cycle, which is about every three years. That is a slow pace, slower pace. And you're talking about growth marketing as opposed to doing growth marketing, right? So if you're ready for that, if you're ready to become a teacher, um, you know, to all your founders and all your, your staff, and if you're ready to, you know, not be on this like rocket ship, right? You know, that's growing super fast and, and, and there's no perks, right? I mean, unless you work at Andreessen and Horowitz, I'm sure. Like, what, like, unless you work at like one of five mega funds, there's no perks. You're not going to get the free lunches and the dogs to work and that kind of stuff either, right? Um, it's, it's just a very different style. Like, is, 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 um, I felt some days, especially as a, someone who writes software code, like I haven't written code now, you know, in a zillion years, right? Like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. It was almost like a, the morphine drip was taken away. Like, I feel like there's a little sense of withdrawal, right? So, so you go from being an operator to then reflecting and drawing on your lessons from your entrepreneurial environment to help others, which is a very big change. And if you're, you know, I, I don't want to like disparage the young, but if you're 27, you don't, I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. You don't have the right experience. You just don't. Right. I mean, I know there's a lot of 27 year olds that are more successful at me at being a VC, but they're successful for other reasons, not because they're, they're doing their six years of experience since they graduated university and bundling that up as opposed to somebody who's got like 20 or 30 years of experience, right. That they bundle, you know, something like a Sequoia that comes in as an operator after 30 years. Right. Um, you know, second is as an operator, you have to then unlearn your kind of entrepreneurial skill set to become a successful VC. So in, in the first year as a VC, I sucked as a VC. And it, it, it didn't suck as a VC because like, I didn't understand like buy low, sell high, because that's really what it means to be a VC, right? Buy low, sell high. Like, so there you go. There's a secret of being a VC, right? <laughs> go, go find a startup that's undervalued or at the right price and hold it until they IPO. Like that, that's the business model, right? So in essence, how, how, how come an operator like myself and other operators that I've talked to, why do we suck the first year or two at being a VC? Because we brought our entrepreneurial skill set to the evaluation process of the companies we wanted to invest in, right? So if you were pitching me XYZ company, I would eventually stop listening to you and start dreaming in my head, well, if I was CEO of this company, here's what I would do. And then I start like liking my ideas because I'm an operator. You can't, I can't turn it off. Right. And my partners at Fresco hate this about me. Right. Like, you know, we we have an audit right now. And like, you know, I, I'm like my operator, like my operator engine jumped in like, well, we got to fix our back end software for our accounting and our this and our, our KYC process and we can automate it. And they're like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, good operators can't turn that off. Right. So I couldn't turn off my entrepreneurial, you know, whatever you want to call it in the head. And I was evaluating companies and biasing my decisions on what I thought the company would do, not necessarily what was coming out of the founder's mouth or was on his or her slide deck, right? So then when they would go and execute their plan, as opposed to my plan, I would be slightly disappointed, 
because in my head, I invested in the company because it was my, uh, my vision of where the company would go, right? Um, every operator makes this mistake. Every, every hardcore entrepreneur makes this mistake when they turn into a VC and it takes, they either quit or they have to unlearn it, right? So, so those are the two really things that like are very, very different, right? Like you're no longer the operator, right? And then it's hard to turn that operator off and become a teacher because right, that's what you're doing, right? And then your evaluation process is, is skewed because of your precisely because of your entrepreneurial experience, right? So, um, luckily, you know, along the way, I had I've got I had gotten an MBA and I've been involved in enough MA, I was able to have enough pattern matching because that's the reason I wasn't mocking the 27 year olds. Is you know, VC is a hits business. How do you so like you know completely a hits business, right? Like it's you know you invest in thirty companies, you know maybe five of them are going to make you the real money, right? So you're investing in hits, so you're no different than a Hollywood producer, right? Like you got to get the the blockbuster movies, right? Um, so I, I, as someone who's now approaching you know midlife here, right? I have worked probably with you know two thousand startups in some capacity, either as an investor, as a mentor at my own startup, or partnered with those startups, like you name it. Like I have touched. As a, as a mentor, as an investor, or as, um, you know, as a company that's pitched me and I've turned them down and then they keep me on their, you know, thing over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, right? Between angel investing, my entrepreneur, right? And now I have patterns. What worked, what didn't work? Now, the successful VCs have more like 20,000, right? So I'm, I'm getting there. I'm working my way up, right? You know, I'm 10% I'm, I'm of the way there. So if you're 25, by definition, unless you started VC angel investing when you were five, um, you're just not going to have that pattern recognition and you're going to be biased because if you grew up in a five-year bubble, like you graduated college in year one of bubble, and then you sell your company for $10 billion and you're way more successful than Steve. Great. Um, you only know that bubble, right? Um, you know, so again, like if you're, if you're 30 years old uh, today, you've never seen an interest rate hike, right? You know, things like that, right? You know, so, so the, the pattern recognition is also very important. And that's one of the reasons why I said, if you're young, and you have, um, you know, successfully exited your business. There's two reasons why you should just go do another one. One is you're probably going to be bored at a younger age being a VC, right? Because you're still going to want to be an, uh, an operator with the high growth. But two, and, and, and this is like the critical one, is you're going to be in this unfair advantage to go raise money because us VCs are biased. The number one thing we look for is like, is this entrepreneur going to make it? Do they have, you know, like when the SHIT hits the fan, right? Is this founder going to stick with the business? Is this founder going to kind of keep going? And if you've already done it, the answer is a glaring yes, right? You know, um, you know, it's, it's such a marker. So you have this unfair advantage to raise money and capital, you know, raise capital for your next startup, right? So I, by all means, that was a long answer. I hope it um, no, it was great. Answered. No, it's definitely answered it. My, my question is now, what are those, maybe we could tie this with another question I have, but what are those patterns that you look for? Uh, as a VC um, in the business or in that founder that you're investing in? Well, we actually look at the patterns in both. Um, so I can give you an example of one of each. The first pattern on the, on the individuals is actually quite simple. And if I have, and I have lots of questions that are thinly designed, thinly veiled designed to answer this type of questions. What is the ability of the um, founder that's now pitching me to react to changes in the market, changes to their assumptions if it's super early um, or just whatever it is and take that and synthesize it. And then if it's in the form of feedback, right, you know, and then um, react to it. And some, you know, sometimes that will cause some things like maybe drastic reactions when you hear the term pivot, which I'm not necessarily a fan of, right? Um, but 
when you are a founder and you are going to absorb information, you know, from that marketplace, how do you then react to it? Do you do it slow? Do you do it fast? Do you do it in a constructive way or in a haphazard way? Are you collaborative about it? Are you not collaborative about it? Right. This is the single number one reason, which I think people not even realize when they look, because they don't look at the data, but this is the number one reason why VCs prefer to do more, you know, maybe two to three founders as opposed to a solo founder, because if you have two to three founders by definition, you're going to go talk to that other founder when there's a crisis or when there's just question marks or sales slow, like whatever, whatever it is. Right? Um, that's the biggest one. How, does, how do the founders react to change or feedback or market conditions, right? And, you know, that, that's the biggest. So the patterns are pretty obvious. The ones that do this in a constructive way, um, you know, in a measured, in a, in a measured collaborative um, you know, way and react to it as opposed to ignore it or fight it or make arbitrary decisions or unilateral decisions, right? Secondly, on, on the companies, it really, so obviously the first thing everyone looks at is team, but that's the reason why, because these are the individuals, you know, you know, until DAOs take over the world, I say that sort of facetiously, it's always gonna be people running these organizations and let's face it, DAOs are still gonna involve people because they're who's gonna code these DAOs, right? Um, but ultimately is, Assuming, assuming we're not investing in some, DA, some random DAO algorithm, that'd be fun, right? You know, let's, let's just invest in algorithmic DAOs instead of teams anymore. So what are, what are VCs going to say in, in 10 years, right? Like when, when you get that environment, you know, because every, every VC says we invest in team first. So, you know, anyway, I digress. So <laughs> when, you look, when you look at the organization, you can tell I'm a little cynical. Um, when you look at the organization, um, you know, the biggest pattern is, is pretty straightforward, right? Is this a, the market that they are in, is this a growing market, right? Because we've already determined that the team can, you know, seize the opportunity, right? So that's table states, right? So now we're looking at the, the company itself. Is, is this a company that is in the right market, that's a growing fast market that has lots of opportunity? And is their position in the market something that's going to be, um, you know, enable them for growth, right? Because you can have the best team in the world. And if you're selling, I don't know, like, you know, alcohol in a Muslim country, I'm pretty sure you're having a pretty low growth environment, right? Like you're limited to the hotels and the embassies, right? Not much growth, right? Um, or you're, you know, you're, you're in some other low growth environment, right? Where maybe regulatory hurdles, like, let's say, like I use the example usually with tobacco in the United States, right? We keep making it harder and harder for people to smoke, thankfully. But at the same time, is it's not a growth industry, right? You know, so, um, I mean, those are a slightly contrived examples, right? But you, you kind of get the point. If the business is in a growing environment and it's positioned as well, right? You know, so it's, um, and sometimes it's very hard to, to tell that, but the patterns that you see are almost always follow those two things, right? Um, you know, the successful companies are going to be in these markets that are growing. So, you know, it doesn't mean like if you're in something that's low growth, you slap the term AI onto it or you slap the term crypto onto it or whatever, right? Like it, you have to truly be able to seize those type of opportunities. And, but you could also be in those markets. Remember the second criteria, you could be in one of these markets and not positioned, right, to, to, to take that growth. Interesting. Okay. Um, a couple more questions, Stephen. Um, the next one I have, uh, we talked about it briefly before, but I, I definitely wanted to bring it up. Um, it's, do you feel that uh, a lot of the founders or startups that uh, exist right now, that they're being, how do I call this, over-mentored? <laughs> um, and so like, as a founder, how do you know it or feel it that it's happening to you? Uh, I, I, would, I would say that the answer is yes. And, and you know, we could 
we don't probably have the time to dive into why that's happening. I mean, I think it's, it comes from a good place. Like people generally want help and these like these early stage funds and early stage accelerators that provide that help. But founders definitely are being over mentored and because, you know, especially now in COVID, like solid rock solid mentors are like a LinkedIn search and a Zoom request away, right? Like, so, um, so on one hand, I don't want to, what I'm about to say, maybe discourage a founder from seeking advice and mentorship. But at the same time is, you don't need to talk to 10 people either. And you don't need to go build like these big advisory boards. So I do think that um, because the mentors are available, founders are, you know, want, you know, founders want to, um, you know, talk to as many people as they can, which, which at the early, early stage is fine. You're still kind of doing your R&D and figuring it out. But ultimately is um, there's definitely so much advice in there. And when you think you're being over mentored, it's a very simple, simple task. If you've got if you feel like you've got to talk to like five people in order to make a decision more than, I'm sorry, like more than four or five people to make a decision, you probably have too many founders. Cause the reality is after you've talked to your co-founder, um, after you talk to maybe a member of your board or an investor, you probably only need to talk to one or two other people, right? You, you, you know, one or two domain experts, right? It's probably, or even something you're an expert, it doesn't matter, right? You just need that second opinion or third opinion, right? Um, you know, I, I was going to say that, you know, um, if you talk to five people and they give you five different pieces of advice, um, that's actually not a sign. That's actually okay. That means you have a very diverse group of people and that's actually a feature, not a bug. However, it's your job not to, you know, like listen to like pick one. <laughs> it's your job to synthesize all five and understand the biases that all five of those people have. Right. So like, you know, I'm, I'm more of a tech guy um, than a marketing guy, let's say. Right. So I, I always come things from the, I come at things from the tech angle. I've been an entrepreneur who's then turned VC. So you probably can assume some of my biases just from listening to the last half hour, right? So understand those biases when you talk to me, right? I'm upfront about them, right? But understand those biases when you talk to me, right? Um, and then you're the expert for your business. So you have to synthesize, you know, from all the people that took it and then take the right. So, so, you know, in Silicon Valley, we keep talking about diversity, you know, diversity, not just with like, you know, people, but also thought, right? So when we're trying to construct a lot of these boards, and invite both advisory and, and governors and you know, board of directors. We're looking for as much as we are looking for like, you know, racial and gender, you know, DNI inclusion, right? But we're also looking DNI, BI actually is inclusion, right? So that's, that's really DII, I guess I just said. But, um, but ultimately is we're also looking for that diversity of thought because that's what we're hoping we're going to get as opposed to I have like diverse person over here, diverse person over there. Someone says A, someone says B. And then we beat the other person up until like the diverse person says B, right? And, and my, my, my argument is you get A and you get B and then you compromise on C, which you never would have gotten to if you didn't have the diversity of thought, right? And, and that's what I'm encouraging the founders to do. If you're not doing that, it doesn't matter if you could be over mentored, you could have a hundred mentors and it's not gonna matter, right? So that's why you only need a handful of, of diverse mentors. Um, you know, at least one or two of them has to be a subject matter expert to what you're doing or the problem you're trying to solve. So I was going to ask you, what's like the right way to find a mentor, um, you know, to, to help you? Um, what should you look for? What should you give up if you have to give up something or if anything at all? Um, do you look for diversity or do you try to find maybe a couple people who have um, a similar type of knowledge that is maybe in your industry focus area, you know, who are subject matter experts? Like any any perfect formula that you would recommend for how to find a great mentors, mentor. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no perfect formula because there's so many 
options. Like if I gave you the perfect formula, then you might close down a very valid route because there's just, you know, there's websites, there's accelerators, there's your VCs and your angel investors. So there's so many routes to good mentors. So I feel like um, finding the perfect mentor or finding a, uh, finding a high quality mentor um, is relatively easy through your network, through that you're already connected to. And if you're not, you can, you can do a search, right? Um, or cold outreach, like you find the people on LinkedIn. What's more critical is finding the right person and engaging with them at the right level. So you may have a um, public policy issue, right? Because your startup is starting to bump up against things in the public domain, like, you know, regulatory, things like that. So like, you may only need to engage with a mentor that has the experience there for a couple hours over coffee. And then you just buy them something nice and send it to them for the advice, right? And then eventually you might, you know, and, and part of their advice might be like, hire a securities lawyer or hire me even, right? You know, like whatever it is, right? Um, but my point is, find the person who is, you have a problem that you're trying to solve. Find the person who has some domain expertise in the problem you're trying to solve. And then, you know, contrast their advice versus the advice you're getting from the people without the domain expertise because you want that diversity of thought and opinion. Or find more than one that might, you know, one might be pro, one might be con, right? You know, like, let's just say, oh, should I go into crypto? Go find a crypto you know, zealot and go find a, a crypto a crypto critic, right? But but both experts in crypto then synthesize their you know their advice. Um, but it's important that you engage with the mentors at the appropriate time, at the appropriate domain, and for the appropriate length. So you don't necessarily go need to be like, oh, I, this this you know, there's a great person. I saw Steve on this podcast. I want to sign him up as a mentor. And like, you know, I'll usually say okay if it's if it makes sense, if it hits my background, it hits my sweet spot, if the time commitment's okay. Um, but you don't necessarily then like need to like say, okay, let's have a monthly call with Steve, right? Like it's, and then you just wind up giving me an update that you gave your board. And then you rather, you know, better yet, instead of having that call, just send me your board notes, right? You know, that kind of thing. Rather, a, a, a better way to engage with a mentor is probably more targeted. Like over the next six months, we're going to be going through growth style marketing. So I'm going to go engage with two or three growth mentors. And then after that six month period, you might keep one on board informally and the other two, you know, less, less so, right? And, and then, um, you know, every three to six months, you're going to kind of cycle through a different folks and there'll be some overlap and not depending on the growth of the business. And then, then you said just with, from a level of compensation or, or thing is, you know, it's ad hoc with all, with each one of them, right? Like, you know, some of them, if you want a deeper engagement, you can compensate them with some equity. There's tons of articles you can read about the fairness of doing. I've, I've even tipped my toe into that and written one. Um, but ultimately, a lot of them, I mean, you can pay some of them uh, as consultants or some of them, you just do it like literally just they're happy to do it if you buy if it's an hour just for buying coffee. Um, you know, I had an issue about something I want to do. And um, I pinged a friend and he had a friend. So it was a friend of a friend. And the guy was gracious, took about a 45 minute phone call with me. And, you know, I had nothing. I mean, you know, I couldn't even buy him coffee. This is COVID, right? You know, so he's up in <laughs> Seattle anyway. Right. So, I mean, it was interesting. I, I used some terms, you know, like like DAOs, like I, I, I kind of casually mentioned, like, and he had no idea that like, you know, you could do like, he's, a, he's like a lawyer security person. He had no idea that in Wyoming, you could actually has a special LLC for DAOs, right? So um, I sent him a whole bunch of stuff on that, right? Like I felt like I at least gave him, like I, I taught him something, he taught me a ton and I taught him a little bit. Um, I felt like I was trying to give back, right? You know, so if it could be as a two-way street, you could, some mentors will do it perfectly for free. You know, they're gonna get some kind of benefit from them. Awesome. Um, last question, Stephen, uh, before we wrap up and I'll kind of maybe put this into together into two and one, what is, what is something that you want to share as a final message to the audience that I haven't maybe asked you so far in this interview, like any final parting words of wisdom? 
Yeah, I, I, I've, I've mentored a lot at accelerators. So, 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 my, so understand that my views come from my experience over a long period of time. And we talked a little bit about my experience. You can probably get the idea. But having been a successful entrepreneur before the, the gold rush that we're in right now and during, um, I was called on by a lot of friends who have built accelerators to mentor companies. I've worked with a lot of startups. And one question I would ask when I was getting a bad feeling or just a weird feeling is, you know, do you feel like you were put on earth to solve this problem, right? And if not, go do a startup, go do a different startup, right? You know, so if, you, if you're doing a startup that, you know, is um, you, were, you don't feel like you were put on earth to solve this problem, um, then you really shouldn't do it. Um, so it doesn't mean you have to be a domain expert. It just be something you have to have the passion to do it because it, it is hard. I mean, everyone tells you it's hard, but trust me, it is, <laughs> right? You know, like, like the Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gates, all those people make it look easy, right? Uh, but they're the outliers. They're the zero, 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 zero point one percent, right? Like, you know, like whatever it is, like, you know, that, that make it big, right? Like the other ones, it's hard, right? So, so have passion. So then at least you'll have fun along the way, right? And then maybe make a dent into the world, right? So I'm, I'm not necessarily saying go out and, um, you know, like do something like, um, you know, that wouldn't work, like that the VCs don't want to do, like, you know, like I have passion about like, you know, the New York Mets, the baseball team in the United States, right? Like I, I can't really do a startup for the New York Mets, right? Um, but I have passion about other things and I, and I dove into them. One of them was developer tools, right? You know, with, with Telerik, right? So um, you have to really enjoy what you're doing. You don't even have to be, a, you don't even have to be a domain expert because you will become a domain expert really fast <laughs> at a startup. So um, just have passion for the problem that you're solving. Awesome. And I think since you've done it five times, it definitely, <laughs> you've come to this <laughs> earth five times to solve something important. So thank you, Stephen. Um, awesome having you on our show and sharing your wealth of experience. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in, supporting the show, following us on LinkedIn as usual, and we'll be back with another episode soon. So Stephen, awesome having you. Thank you again. Ah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to chat. We are proud.